It's the Weekly Show with David J. Maloney. This week, David chats with Blue Oyster Cult drummer Albert Bouchard. And now, here's your host, David J. Maloney. Our featured guest tonight has earned his place in the pantheon of rock and roll with his incredible work as a drummer and as a founding member of the band Blue Oyster Cult and is now finishing up a legacy project that has weaved and wound its way through the band's history. Here to chat about his new album and last in the trilogy, Imagino's Volume 3, Mutant Reformation, is none other than drummer Albert Bouchard. Albert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So where does your music journey start? I know before uh, we started this interview, we were talking a little bit about Stony Brook, where my mom went. Um, But where would you say yours starts? Well, I started in uh, in uh, the town that I grew up in most of my life. Well, my, you know, my ch- before I was an adult, uh, Clayton, New York. Okay, so uh, Clayton, New York is really it's on the up. It's on the very northern border of New York State, like almost in the middle of the state. It's at the end of Lake Ontario, which so Lake the upper border of New York State is Lake basically Lake Ontario and then the St. Lawrence River, you know, going further up. So this is right where Lake Ontario ends and the St. Lawrence River begins. And I really grew up just feet away from the Canadian border. Was was um, Stony Brook University the true start of Blue Oyster Cult or were there other imports of the story that we would miss out on if you started at that point? Uh, It really started, I would have to say, you know, I mean, you know, I wanted to be a drummer when I saw the the parade coming. I've talked about that before. And, you know, I was only three years old and uh, that, but then I had a band in, uh, I guess you'd call it junior high. They didn't have that then. But, uh, you know, when I was in uh, sixth grade, we started. I was only uh, 12 years old and um, and then uh, but really it started when I went to college to this Potsdam uh, uh, school called uh, Clarkson and now it's a university it's a huge school but um, it was engineering school and I met this other engineering school named Don Roser actually a whole bunch of them Uh, Don Roser Jeff Latham Bruce Abbott and uh, Skip O'Donnell and we had a, a college band that was extremely successful, you know, uh, mind-boggling, you know, because we started out as the worst band, and then, and and in the course of the two years that I went to that school, but we all went to that school because we were all freshmen, uh, we became very popular and making lots of money. I thought, oh my gosh, I can make a living doing this. So we, so Jeff, uh, Don, and myself, the three of us three out of the five we we all dropped out together and uh, we tried to make it and of course it was a, <laughs> a rude awakening you know because we didn't make any money and you know and we went our separate ways and then and then I got in a band with Jeff in Chicago and you know they had a record contract and of course that whole thing fell apart and then I I went to New York and I got in a band with Don and uh, and we we weren't making any money but uh, we met this guy who had just graduated from Stony Brook, uh, Sandy Perlman. Sandy Perlman. And uh, that was really the start of everything. When we met Sandy and then, you know, we and it was uh, Don, myself, 
Alan Lanier and some other guys, you know, John Wiesenthal, who actually started the band, and uh, uh, Andy Winters, who played, who played bass, and then there was some other people that, you know, played with us once. David Roeder played with us a little while, and Harry Wolf played with us, and uh, um, oh, I can't remember the guy. The guy they call, they call Buffalo. Mike Witzel played cello. So there was a whole bunch of people that came and went. Jeff Richards played the sax. So and Les Brenstein was our singer, and uh, and that was the soft dry diner belly. And Sandy was the manager, and he got us all kinds of gigs, playing uh, you know playing opening for the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead and the band, you know, we just lost Robbie. Just Robbie. lost Robbie, yeah. Yeah, so, but that was one of our big concerts was playing with the band. They played two shows on the same night and, and the first show they sounded awful. They were just terrible. And so they, uh, <laughs> The concert stopped. I got to tell this story, if you don't mind. Is that okay? We got yeah, go for, go yeah. for it. I'm, 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 by the way, I'm from Woodstock, so uh, oh. the band is very close to my heart. But go yeah. for it. So, and you're in Biloxi now, is that correct? Well, yeah, we cover the entire Gulf Coast, pretty much from like Panama City all the way to the Louisiana state line. So you got Pensacola Mobile. Our, that's kind of our television viewing area, that whole area. Cool. cool. I love that area. Anyway, so... Uh, 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 we uh, we got all these great gigs. We you know right away the first one of the first gigs we got was uh, at the Cafe Gogo in New York City, where we were opening for James Cotton, and in his band was Muddy Waters and Muddy oh, wow. Waters' whole band. You know Luther Allison, you know Francis Clay on the drums. You know, I can't remember who played bass, but you know, it was it was a fantastic show, and uh, and Richie Havens was a middle act, and Richie and I became close friends, you know, until he died, you know, just you know, you know, years later. But uh, yeah, he was actually my first close friend from New York City that I didn't already know. My new, my closest new friend, you know, and, and he, he and he played in the original Woodstock too. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah. That was that was we you know we were already you know the software and underbelly we had gigs and we were doing all kinds of stuff and but um, so uh, that was how it started really was meeting Sandy Perlman at Stony Brook and we none of us went there but he did and uh, and uh, we, and his his best friend Richard Meltzer also went there so and 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 the guy that started the band John Wiesenthal he went there so that was kind of how everything, you know, started. Now, I understand there was some sort of jam session that Sandy happened upon where he heard the guys for the first time. Were you playing in that jam session? No, I was not. That was before I was there. I was, at that point, I was in Chicago playing with Jeff Latham. Got and it. Jeff Latham, uh, uh, what happened was the software Denderbelly, we started getting gigs and doing all this stuff. And then Alan Lanier got drafted and he was in the army for about six months, uh, and uh, until he got a medical discharge. But uh, uh, in that six months, Jeff Latham came from Chicago and played with uh, with the Soft Red Underbelly. So that was uh, so he was uh, part of the whole beginning thing. And uh, and at the in the beginning, I wrote all the songs, almost all. Uh, actually, I wrote most of them, and Alan Lanier wrote. You know, I think I wrote about three or four songs, and Alan wrote two, and then and then uh, and then we would just jam. <laughs> 
we would just play those songs and just take it into uh, just a whole other area, you know. It was uh, in the area, of the, it was 1967, 68, 69, where there was a lot of jamming and not a whole lot of songwriting. I, in my high school band, I, I, Joe and I used to write songs. And uh, then when I got in the soft right underbelly, I, did, I didn't write that many songs at first because we were just a jam band. And then, you know, when we played, for instance, we played uh, we played the uh, Cafe Gogo with James Cotton. We played one song, <laughs> one song for twenty minutes, and it was called uh, Pot Bust. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, and Richard Meltzer was our lead singer. <laughs> oh wow! Yeah, and he just screamed obscenities into the mic for the for twenty minutes. You know, he he come out scream some obscenities and then walk away and come back and say some other obscenities. And of course, uh, let's see, what was the guy's name? Uh, I want to say uh, Howard Solomon was the the uh, owner or proprietor of Cafe Gogo. And so Howard goes up to Sandy Perlman and he goes, what is he trying to do? You know, I already got busted for Lenny Bruce. <laughs> that's funny yeah um, so so who who came up with the idea of stage names was that a sandy thing and yeah. and how did that conversation go were the stage names connected to the lyrics or storytelling in any way or were they just arbitrary i think they were arbitrary it was uh and that was really not in the that was after the uh the software underbelly uh when uh see what happened was Les Brunstein was our lead singer originally, and, and most of those gigs that I'm talking about were Les was the singer. Uh, so uh, Les decided that he couldn't sing the material that we were playing. And, uh, you know, we're right in the middle of making a record, mind you. And, you know, something people always dream about, like, oh, we're getting a record deal. We're going to make a record. But, you know, uh, he he decided that he couldn't sing the material and so we ha he wanted us to re-record the whole record with just his material because that's what he felt comfortable with and we're like Les this is not this is not viable they've already spent all the money and and now you're saying you can't sing it you know whereas you sang it when they when we auditioned you sang it you know we put down the basic tracks and then you erased all the vocals and said I can't sing it and he's like, sorry, guys, that's just how it is. And so uh, we had to part ways with Les. And so, of course, then it was like, who's going to sing? So I tried singing those songs and they're like, OK, yeah, um, maybe you could do it. You know, and Don tried singing it and they're like, oh, no, nah, Don, you're just you're not a front guy. You know, you just don't have the 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 aggression, you know, <laughs> it's too mellow, you know. And so uh, Sandy Perlman uh, tried it and, and we were like, well, Sandy, you've got a great voice, but you can't sing. <laughs> and Richard Meltzer tried singing it and was like, oh, my God. OK, he can't do it at all. We don't. First of all, we don't trust him to not like burst out with He's <laughs> like he did in that other. Yeah, that other, he had his one chance yep. to be lead singer. And, uh, you know, and he did what he could do, you know, and I'm sure these days people would think it's great. You know, he fit it right in with those uh, uh, trap Black flag. <laughs> so how how intimately involved was Sandy with the band? Uh, I mean, uh, 
as far as did he get involved in lyric writing or any of those types of things or was that just all you guys on that end no no well uh not at the very first but uh i would say within oh maybe three months you know he started coming around with l lyrics you know things written out and uh, he uh, the first song that he gave me was this thing called buddha's knee and so i wrote a song a little tune to it and he liked it he liked it a lot and then he started uh saying you know i've got an idea for that song that that you know that you wrote you know i wrote the lyrics it was called you <laughs> and uh he said uh yeah it was kind of like a paranoid pot dream you know and uh and uh he said i got a better idea i'll take take your idea you know, basically, it was about trying to get out of the draft and, and going to Canada. So he wrote Red and the Black, which was uh, like the second song that we did together. And he came up with these lyrics. And I'm like, whoa, okay, this is way better than what I had. You know, mine was pretty generic and just not, you know, not a lot of imagery in it. Whereas his was rich with, you know, weird stuff, you know, sort of uh, sadomasochistic you know but also the mounties and you know the ice and the you know the, the north pole and <laughs> the, the 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 sled dogs and you know yeah it was it was great it was like holy cow at, at that point i was like okay sandy what else you got you know yep we finally got our neil peart um when when were you first introduced to the imagina story how did that happen that happened uh, just a couple of weeks after I met Sandy and and we uh, John Wiesenthal John Wiesenthal had gotten us a band house where we could we could uh, uh, all stay or if, or stay if we wanted to or if we you know most of the guys had you know were living at home but they didn't want to you know bring their girlfriend over home you know they so that it was a house for trysts and also uh, uh, a, a practice space you know they had a big bedroom so we you know i slept in that room but it was also our practice room so there was a set of drums and a uh, you know farfisa organ and uh, some guitar amps or bass amp so uh we would practice there and um uh yeah so that was that was that was how it got started you know and he he came he came over one time and we were we would Okay, so we, uh, we, the landlord did not want any smoking in the house. So, and we liked to smoke pot. So we would, um, uh, we would go up in the attic to smoke the pot because we thought, well, he won't smell it up here. <laughs> and so we went up the attic, right, and we're smoking pot, and Sandy Perlman is up there. I don't remember if he was smoking or not. You know, I know that later on he didn't indulge at all, and he, you know, he would drink a glass of wine now and then, but he was not. He really liked to be in control, so he was not a big partier. But he was up there, and he started telling the story about Imaginos and uh, how you know this this character, you know. You know, it was an alien thing. He was maybe part alien. You know, he wasn't totally human, and uh, you know, he had special powers. And and the, he got uh, uh, recruited by some aliens to be their agent of evil. 
and uh, and uh, the world and uh, you know and it went all the way into World War World War One. That basically that was the end of the story, you know. And and he came up with this idea while not stoned. I think so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, he came up with it before I met him. You know, so it was just something he had kicking around. You know, when he uh, was get, going to graduate school. So um, yeah. So and I never realized that this thing was going to be sticking with me for most of my life. You know. Uh, I, I need to ask you a question about the band's name, Blue Oyster Cult. Where yeah. where did the name originate? I think I read somewhere that it also had an origin. Uh, in Sandy's Imagino story, is that true? Yeah. And did you guys know at yeah. the time it was proposed, or did it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, that that was one of the lyrics. You know, where after after I said, "What else you got?" Then he started. You know, you know. Well, first, first he was started giving me all the stuff, and then Richard Meltzer was like his friend started giving me all this stuff, and I'm like, Sandy, why can't you write like Richard? Richard's songs were easy to write because they all they had a, they all had a, a, a certain iambic pentameter, you know, a, a, a rhythm that was easy, and they, and they always rhymed. And Sandy would, Sandy would rhyme inside the line, you know, and not on the outside, you know, not on the last word. So he had all these like his ideas about what a, would make a good lyric were were um, odd. You know, I mean, I think that, you know, and this is back in mo the days when, you know, I mean, the idea of a band writing their own material was was novel. You know, it's mostly there was songwriters and there was musicians and the musicians would get songs from various places and uh, and learn them. And, and the songwriters wouldn't try and become musicians. You know, it's like a separation of of a thing. So. Uh, you know, the Beatles had started it. I think this was after Sgt. Pepper's and that kind of blew, you know, that kind of blew up that whole concept, you know. But, uh, you know, even then, there was still a lot of, you know, Motown was still popular and that was basically, all of that music was made by the same, you know, dozen musicians or so. Yeah. You know? How did the how did the umlaut become part of the name? I mean, were you guys who kind of actually started that trend? Because I can't right now. I can't think of any other bands before you guys that had the umlaut, you know, uh, in the name of the band. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that was Alan Lanier's idea. Uh, I I didn't even know what an umlaut was, you know, or yeah. what it was called. You know, I would see that funny, you know, yeah. like it looked like a. Somebody had flipped a, a colon, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, on its side and, and stuck it above a, a, a letter. So I didn't know what it was or how, you know, how you would say it or, you know, I, I figured it was like the accent on a Spanish word, you know. Uh, so, yeah. So, so now you got the name, you got the yeah. band, you got the yeah. songs. Yeah. What was it like walking to the studio the first time to record the band's self-titled debut? Well, that it we had been in the studio a lot before that we had uh we'd auditioned for all these you know when we started out as the software underbelly we auditioned for all these people uh, uh what's the guy's name uh, jerry ragavoy was one of the people uh, uh uh david rubens rubens rubinson david rubinson uh we auditioned for him and al cooper 
you know, this is during the super session time. And so Al, Al and David, we auditioned for them. Uh, and, so, and all these auditions were in the studio, basically. Um, then, and we weren't really that great at a live band, I would say, you know, it didn't, we didn't really get really good until Eric joined the group. You know, after, you know, after everybody tried out for the lead singer, then, then Eric tried out and it was clear he was the best, best person for this. He'd been fronting a, a college band for years. And uh, so he, he came in and he, he just, he owned it, you know, so. How did the song Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll first come about? Okay, so that was, okay, that, that's the thing, that uh, the, the nicknames and, uh, and the, the material for the first record was, uh, we, had, we basically changed our direction because originally we were kind of like a jam band, you know, like Quicksilver or Grateful Dead or, you know, we played with those groups and so we were very influenced by them. And, uh, you know, we were a bunch of, you know, white guys getting high on acid <laughs> so so uh that's that's how we how we kind of approached our music but then uh when uh murray krugman got involved because he was our co-manager co-producer after uh, once we got signed to columbia records and he basically engineered that whole thing you know for us to be signed to columbia but he said you know columbia has no really hard group you know so we want we want somebody that's you know the columbia's answer to black sabbath so uh we changed our our sound and we changed our our uh, you know our whole image you know we were you know before we were like tie-dyed and you know madras and all of this other stuff and all of a sudden we're wearing black leather and you know we have pseudonyms that you know sound weird you know and uh yeah so and so so you had this original idea of what you were going to be and you ended up becoming what a lot of people consider to be kind of the thinking man's heavy metal group which is kind of opposite of your jam kind of yeah yeah well yeah. you know we we were the thing is that we always tried to be original that was that was i think that we wanted to stand out by not being like anybody else so that was you know we embraced the umlaut you know because nobody did it you know yeah. this is the first band with an umlaut in it it was like oh yeah you know and and if a song that we were working on sounded like anything else it was like nope 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 got to change that you know and the lyric was like, you know, moon, June, you know, love songs. Nope, nope, got to change that. So we, we went out of our way to be uh, obscure. <laughs> your, your, uh, your next album, Tyranny and Mutation, continued the upward trend for you guys, uh, outselling your debut, as I understand it. I'd yeah. like to make our next stop with the band's first gold certified album, Secret Treaties, though. This is this uh, the first collaboration between you guys and, and Patti Smith, right? And how did that collaboration come about? Uh, not, not actually, because uh, first of all, <clears throat> Patti was, Patty was with us. All, all the way from the beginning before oh, wow. we signed to Columbia, Patty was uh, Alan's girlfriend, and mm, she was okay. getting known as a as a uh, you know a prolific and popular poet. She wasn't a singer; she didn't have a band. She, but uh, and uh, she had written a song with Rick Derringer, 
uh, when she, you know I think she she knew she met him through Steve Paul I, I believe who was managing the McCoys I think it was the McCoys or maybe it was Johnny Winter I don't know it was he was managing somebody and Rick was involved in it and and Patty knew him and she, he hooked them up and they they wrote a song and then uh, when we got our Columbia deal I uh, said uh, actually <clears throat> it was uh, for uh, we were working on our second record Tyranny Mutation which followed very closely after the first one. It was less than a year later we were working on that record and uh, we were practicing in the band house and it was my birthday, um, May 24th, uh, mm, 71? Could have been 71 or 72, I'm not sure. I, you know, memory is funny. <clears throat> but anyway, she gave me a lyric. And she said, Albert, this is for you on your birthday. And, you know, and it was all, you know, she printed out this lyric sheet and it had like a little drum on it with some hearts and all this. It was very cute, you know. And uh, the, the song was called uh, The Revenge of Vera Gemini. So uh, I, I, I was so... You know, I was so excited. You know, it was my it was a great birthday party, and, and the next day I got up and I wrote a I I came up with a song. You know, uh, you know for that for that thing, and I showed it to Don Roser. You know, when he got up, you know, I think I got up early. I was so excited. You know, and I and I I did the, wrote this song. I showed it to Don. And he goes, Nah, nah, Al, it's not. This is not good. You know, this lyric is way better than this music. I'm like. Yeah, yeah, it's not original. It's not that original. It was actually, I took... You borrowed. Actually, here's what he said. You borrowed. You got a lot of nerve stealing that Bob Dylan song. <laughs> and i like, oh, you know, you could tell, right? And he's like, yes. You know, because she had already told me that I share a birthday with Bob Dylan, so... You know that uh, you know, and when I first saw it, I said, "Oh, you wrote a song about you." So now that's about Bob Dylan. I said, "Oh, is that his birthday? Is the same day?" He said, "Yeah, yeah, it's today." And I'm like, "Wow, okay." So, so, so I shelved that. I said, "Okay," and I said, "Patty, you got anything else?" She goes, "Yeah, I got this song, Baby Ice Dog." So I I wrote something to that, which I stole a bunch of uh, blues project licks, you know. Yeah. Apologies, so, Danny Kalb and Al Cooper, but yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but, uh, and people liked it. So that was the first time that we ever worked with that, uh, you know, put a, a song on, and that was on Tyranny Imitation. So, so now you've got three full albums out, uh, and next comes your yeah. live album, On Your Feet or On Your Knees, which mm -hmm. went straight to gold. Did mm -hmm. you guys have any idea that the live album was going to take off like it did? Any inclination or hunch? We had hoped it would. I mean, we also, because <clears throat> the the first three records, you know, the first record was mixed by <clears throat> David Lucas. And, uh, you know, although it was okay, it kind of didn't, it kind of had a lo-fi sound. And then the second record was was mixed by the... Uh, the engineer who worked for Columbia, and I can't remember his name, but 
it's on the record. But anyway, he mixed the second one, and then he mixed the third one with, with Sandy and Murray. And by the third record, we'd recorded that in Columbia's 31st Street Studios, which was a fantastic place. It was where Miles Davis recorded a lot of his his uh, it was a big it was a big church on 31st Street and. Uh, he recorded uh, the record that he made with Gil Evans there, and and uh, I think, you know, a lot of jazz records were made there, and also some rock records. And and while we were there, we were making this record, going, "Oh my God, this is this record is fantastic! It sounds amazing!" You know, you know, it sounded like you know, it sounded extremely hi-fi and really great. And then we listened to the final mix, and we're like, "Oh." what did you do and they're like well, you don't like it it's great it's great we're like we hate it you know it didn't sound like this you know they mixed it while we're out on tour you know and we came back and we're like ah so this is this is documented i'm not just making this up this is not my this is all of our opinions we're like this is not working for us and at the time we were you know i think the second or third Aerosmith record was out and I said we said who mixed that oh Jack Douglas so we said okay you guys can produce this next live record but we Jack Douglas it. has got to mix it and of course when the record was done I mean when that when the recordings were made I was like this is terrible there's feedback throughout the whole thing it's like we we don't even sound that good you know we're making all these mistakes because the PA is so terrible and somehow Jack Douglas made it sound amazing. And so, you know, when we heard what he had done with it, we're like, oh my God, we got to work. We got to work with him forever. You know, of course we didn't, <laughs> unfortunately, but we did, you know, but after that, we started paying attention to people who were very talented. So the next one after Jack Douglas was uh, Shelly Yakis, who was, you know, I mean, he hadn't had that many hits. Actually, when we were in the software underbelly, we made a record in A&R with Les Brunstein. This record that Les uh, erased the vocals and Shelley was the, he was the, the gopher. He would get us coffee. So, you know, you know five years later, he's, he's making our first platinum record. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how much effect do you think the success of that live album had on the band's next album, the platinum selling Agents of Fortune. I mean, did it give you any extra juice with the label or studio um, to be able to, to yes. create this masterpiece of rock history? Yeah, yeah, they gave us a lot. They they more than doubled our, our budget for the record. And more importantly, they decided they were gonna hire some promo people to plug it. So- uh, And that is and, hugely important. Yeah. Um, what did it feel like in the studio recording that album? I mean, did you guys have a feeling like you were making an album that was going to take BOC Platinum? Yep. yep. You just knew. Yep. It was just there. I mean, and arguably the song that you guys are most known for and has had the most, at least more recent cultural impact is Don't Fear the Reaper. How did that song originally find its way onto the album? And did you guys think it was particularly special when you were doing it anyway, as opposed to the other songs on the album? Did it seem like a breakout song for that? Okay, well, I have to say uh, that I was there right as Don was making it. So, uh, I mean, I wasn't with him in the room, but he called me up 
uh, one night, and I, w I, had, I had been working on some songs, and he, you know, for this new record, I'm like, we gotta, this record is, we've gotta come up with even better stuff than last time, and it's gotta be a little bit more accessible, because, uh, you know, this whole thing about trying to be, uh, you know, oblique, <laughs> you know, it may be working against us a little bit, even though, you know. We, not resonating with his, with the masses enough. Yeah, yeah, so we, we decided we wanted to, to have something that was more accessible, and, uh, and that's why we brought David Lucas back in, because, you know, as a jingle producer, he knew how to please all the people all the time. You know, Sandy Perlman, he only wanted to please. He wanted fanatical following. He did not care if it was huge. He just wanted people to love the band, you know, those, pe those certain people that it would resonate with. You know, which is kind of, it's not, you know, he knew about, about, uh, about music and about fandom and stuff like that, so. Uh, that was a good uh, thing, but at the time, at, by the time we came to make that record, we realized we had to shift a little bit. And so uh, he played it for me on the on the you know he just played the guitar riff, and I'm like, hey, oh yes, really once you hear catchy. the riff, that's a good riff, you know. And so he said, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a I'm gonna put some vocals on it, and I'll I'll bring it to you know I think we were going on the road like three or four days later. He said, I'll bring it and you can hear it, you know, put it on your Walkman. So I, uh, I came, you know, I met him at the airport. And he gave me the cassette and I put it on and we're flying to Seattle, right? And uh, I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. This is really good. This is a hit. This is, Don, this is a hit. He's like, well, maybe, I don't know. It doesn't quite fit the group, you know? And there were some people in the group who were like, this is not us. This is, you know, come on, how am I gonna sing this? You know, and uh, I'm like, no, this is, I don't care who sings it, this is a hit. This song is, it's got it. You know, I just knew it was a hit. And then uh, I, we got to Seattle, I had a girlfriend, uh, Monica DeMeo was my girlfriend in Seattle, and I hadn't seen her in a while. And I said, Monica, you've got to hear this. She, and she's a, she was a music freak. Her father was uh, the owner of um, the, the big uh, radio station in Seattle. I can't remember what it was, but anyway, so she was, and she, she was a catering girl. She catered the, 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 all the rock shows, you know. Uh, and so I, I played it for her, and she started crying. I'm like, wow, wow. She's like, this is so beautiful. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it, it, isn't it great? She's like, yeah, did you write this about me? I'm like, I, I didn't write it, Monica. Don wrote it. She's like, oh, okay, so you're not breaking up with me. I said, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I never did. She broke up with me, but. Anyway, <laughs> that's another story. That's another story. So Queen saw a resurgence of their hit Bohemian Rhapsody after it was in Wayne's World. Did BOC experience something similar with Don't Fear the Reaper after the more cowbell skit on SNL? Did that suddenly like remind everybody of the song and kind of see a resurgence of it? I, I think so. I, I think it had to because, uh, I mean, at that time I was, I had, I had retired from the music business. I decided I had enough, you know, it was like, it was too cutthroat. You know, I, I was in, I was uh, estranged from Joe, you know, who was, who was, you know, up until that point, he was 
like my best friend all the time. So, you know, we had a falling out over my leaving the band. And uh, so when that came out in 2000, uh, I was working in a, I had been working in a, a public school as a, as a music teacher for about uh, 13 years, you know, since 87. So, and in this school, you know, I would say, well, yeah, well, I used to be a rock star. And they're like, yeah, you used to be a rock star, mister. Why, how, why are you in this crappy school? <laughs> I'm like, because I like you guys. What do you think? I, it's a good gig, you know. Nobody ever tells me how, how this, uh, this gig is all messed up, you know, when I come in the door. You know, I come in and you guys are like, you know, you, it, it doesn't matter. You know, you, your parents are on welfare or whatever, and you, you come in and you say, yo, Big Al, what's up? You know, I'm like, okay, I like this. You know, I mean, it, it, the, the, just the eternal optimism of youth, it was, it was a, a refreshing thing for me. Anyway, none of the kids knew anything about Blue Oyster Cult. We're talking, you know, inner city, you know, mostly African-American or Hispanic. And uh, they didn't, it was off their radar, you know. And all of a sudden, everybody knew who I was. I became the star of the school for the for the next uh, you know 18 years or so, and uh, and uh, you know when the kids would come in to, to to see if they wanted to go to the school, and and we had a very nice facility. It was a beautiful building, and so um, at that time, and or not actually not well in 2000. Yeah, yeah, we just gotten it, so it was brand new building. And they come down. And they say, "Here's our rock star. You know, you want to take music with this guy? You know." So, uh, so I was became like a draw in the school. You know, and all the kids knew I who I was. They they even many times we acted out the whole skit. You know, with different That's people. Funny. Playing, you know? what? Was there ever a conversation about including a cowbell in that song, or was it just something that you, as a percussionist or whoever, just just added naturally because you're musicians and that's what you do? Or was there ever a cowbell conversation? It it was the skit was really. I mean, of course they they magnified it to the point where it was really silly and funny, but yeah. that was the real conversation. You know, I mean, so I got a fever and the only prescription. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the producer never said that. But I was like, yeah. David, David Lucas was the, you know, we for um, like I say, for for uh, when we were going to make Agents of Fortune, we decided this is a really we're trying to be commercial now. We're actually yeah. trying to get a mass appeal. So we brought. David back, you know, he produ he produced the first record, you know, and Sandy and Murray basically just kind of, you know, they would yes him or no him, but, you know, it was him producing the record. And then they decided they didn't like being told what to do by this, you know, this, you know, commercial hack or whatever they thought. But so they produced Tyranny Mutation and uh, Secret Treaties. And then we, you know, we were we were kind of sick of that. And so we got Jack Douglas at least to mix the next one. And then when the, the, the fifth record, 
we said we got to get David Lucas back. We demanded that David come back and that we have a, a really great engineer to, to mix and, and uh, make the track sound good. So we got Shelly and we got David Lucas. And, um, and so David was like, he, he had had Randy Brecker play a trumpet part on the track in the middle part, you know, you know, that bizarre kind of like left field, you know, it just goes into this other thing. They're like, what song was this? What are we listening to? You know, it was kind of, you know, I mean, we, we originally, we did the song just straight ahead. And, and I remember saying to Don, I think it needs something else, you know, some, you know, I think I've got an idea, change the key. And Don is like, no, nah, no, nah, it's okay. I, I got an idea too. I know what you're saying now. So, you know, a couple of days later he comes in with that and I'm like, whoa, well you really went, you took this idea and went to the extreme. So anyway, he had uh, uh, Randy, Randy Brecker, famous, great trumpet player, play the trumpet, played a trumpet solo in that section. Now, Donald had already played that amazing lead and so this was laying on top of Donald's lead and, and, uh, and we're like, I don't think it works. It's not, you know, all of a sudden, where, where did, you know, I mean, it's, it's weird enough as it is. Now you've got the raging, I mean, the, the, the lonely bull coming in there, you know? So, <laughs> so uh, uh, we had him erase the track. We said, get that off there. That's not gonna work. We're, and we're not, you know, Don's solo is perfect. It's great. And I said, hey, we got an extra track. Let me play a triangle on the, on the middle part. Yes. Yeah. What do you mean a triangle? Okay, that's almost as weird as the trumpet. Yeah. I said, no, no, listen, it's going to fit perfectly. It's going to blend right in. It'll go boom, 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 ding, boom, 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 ding. So it's there. It's he let me do it. He said, "Okay, I'll let you do it, but you have to play cowbell in the verses." I'm like cowbell, you mean like dunk, 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 dunk? You know? And he's like, "No, no, just four. Just I want to hear quarter notes." Dink, 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 and I said, yep. "Is there something wrong with the drum part?" And he's like, "No, the drum part is fine. It's just just nobody is playing quarter notes." I said, "Hmm." You're right. Do 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 and boom 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 boom. I'm playing the white beat, white boy beat. You know, it's all eighth notes. Do do one and two and three and four. So he wanted one, two, three, four to give it a little relaxation. So I said, okay, you know, I'll try it, you know, and I bunk 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 bunk, and I'm like, David, this, you know. We got through the first verse. I'm like, stop, stop, stop. David, this is, it sounds, I don't know what it sounds like in there, but it sounds terrible out here. It sounds like I'm wrecking the song. And uh, I said, how's it sound in there? And of course, Don, you know, Buck Dharma is in the studio. He goes, yeah, it's kind of distracting. <laughs> and it, I mean, this is what he said. So uh, David said, well, put some tape on it. So I put the tape on it. I play it and I'm like, I still don't like it. And, uh, he, and David says, I really want to hear that. And uh, I said, well, what if I play it with a, a timpani mallet? 
I had one in my stick bag, so I, I took out that. It's kind of softer. And it made it didn't even sound like a cowbell at that point. It sounded more like a wood block, but he got that quarter note pulse that he wanted. And uh, I said, I, I could live with that. And Don said, yeah, it's good. It's good. So that's how it got on there. And actually, I, I did it. You know, we stop at the end of the first verse. And, and then I said, okay. And then... So I said, okay, well, I'll, uh, just give me a track, just give me the whole track, and I'll play the whole thing. And and David Lucas said, I got another idea, you know. And you put it said, in later too. <laughs> yeah, and Don said, oh, I want to play a vibra slap in the at the end of the of the solo. So we the three of us went out there. We got around one mic, and we just did the, all the percussion, you know. So there's a little, there's like a wiro. You know that David Lucas played, and uh, at the end of the, you know, at the very last note of the uh, of the guitar solo, Don goes, you know. So that's and that's how that happened, and it's all on one track, one take. How how, how crazy is it that here we are, decades later, and now there's even an application in all Teslas that actually feature that song? Did you were you aware of that? I did not know that. Yeah, I have I have a Tesla and there is an app. And when you hit the app, it goes to this little rainbow screen and it plays just Don't Fear the Reaper. No other songs. That's it. <laughs> oh my God. That's yeah. great. Yeah. That's great. Here we are decades later, and it's in it's I don't know if it's one of those, you know, quirky Elon Musk things, but they I mean, mine's an 18 and it's in there. Wow. It's in there. And and every once in a while you you hit it, it goes this little rainbow feature, and it plays Don't Fear the Reaper and actually throws a little bit of Christopher Walken in there, too. So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it's wow. kind of funny. Wow. So, uh, you know, Lowe's has it now. You've seen yeah. the, 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 the commercials, the, yeah. The Reaper display for Halloween. They're selling this display, a Bluetooth display. So, and I think it, it says Don't Fear the Reaper and it has the band, you know. That's crazy. As, as, uh, skeletons <laughs> so did that have something did the cow i know you guys reissued agents of fortune with new tracks in 2001 that seemingly i guess did that follow the snl skit and would that have something to do with the resurgence or were you always planning on or were you guys previously planning i guess on doing the reissue of agents of fortune we had talked about it because we, we we recorded a lot of other songs that would never got used, you know. Yeah, like in, and you put them down in like seventy five or seventy six or something. Where yeah. where the heck were those tracks living all those years and in what format? They were just you know they were. I mean they they I think they they probably got to the mixing stage. I know Fire of Unknown Origin was was mixed. You know, and that was actually going to be on the the record instead of Tenderloin or or something like that. There was, or maybe it was, I don't know. <clears throat> they they there was a. I can't remember what what song was going to be eliminated because they didn't want to put too many songs. They only wanted nine songs because Reaper was a little longer, so you know, and uh, they didn't want. You know, this is in the vinyl era, so. You know, yeah. you, you could have a final or you could have a cassette that was, you know, maybe an A track was still around a little bit, but, you know, it's mainly vinyl. So it vinyl, you really can't put more much more than 20 minutes, you know, on a, yeah. on a side. So um, I want to get into some of your more current stuff. But I, before I do that, I want to talk about Spectres. 
Mm -hmm. uh, because it was released a good critical acclaim, and I feel I'd be leaving something out if I at least didn't ask about Godzilla. Um, what mm -hmm. I mean, what a life that song has had. Um, yeah. What was the band's original idea or intent with that song? I mean, who proposed it? Do you guys have any inkling at all this thing would become one you'd be known for for all this time? You know, I'm not surprised uh, because, uh, you know, uh, I know that Don and all of us, we really like novelty tunes. You know, we like Purple People Eater and The Witch Doctor and, you know, all of these other novelty tunes. So, uh, you know, I think there was, a, yeah, The Purple People Eater was, a, yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember that song too. Yeah, and from outer space, but you know, and uh, and also there was a a song in um, that Donald and I used to play it with our college band called the Gorilla, and it went go 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 Gorilla go now go 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 go. go. I don't know what, who did it. I can't remember. I think there was something the the the. The, the fraternity brothers or something I don't know it was like it's a, it was a college tune and so uh, but and that kind of maybe got made its way somehow into the go go Godzilla part but uh, the original idea came from Patti Smith she had written a, a poem and at the end of the thing she said it, it the poem ended with Zilla God Zilla God Zilla God Zilla so um you know, so so Donald saw that poem. We we'd passed it around. You know, we were thinking about trying to turn it into a song, and Donald's like, "Well, just the Godzilla part. That would be great." You know, so he called up Patty, and said, "You know, let's write this song, Godzilla." And Patty said, "I I would love to do it, but I'm on tour right now. You know, I mean, or I think maybe she was going on tour." A, a couple days later and she she couldn't do it she had to, she was practicing with her band she was n nervous about you know getting uh you know being able to you know as you do you know when you're about to go on tour you start practicing like crazy and uh and uh so she couldn't do it so she said and don said well i'll wait till you come back and then uh, you know she's out on the road and he's like wow no, nah, no, nah, I gotta get, so he put it down all by himself, you know, and so he ended up not using anything but, you know, the idea. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I wonder what would, you know, but, well, that's kind of what I was trying to answer in my version on. Uh, yeah, well, it's funny that it just resonates. I remember, I think, even though, you know, as, as a kid, I kind of knew some of the other songs, I think that song just immediately gravitated, and then that's how I kind of knew of the band, and then, all the other things start to follow yeah. um you, uh, you know just one record later you guys put out some enchanted evening and that thing goes straight to platinum um was that another one of those things where it didn't sound exactly right live and they tweaked it and made it better or or were you had you guys gotten so good at being doing live stuff by that point in time they didn't have to do as much because i mean it seems like sometimes your live stuff does equally or if not better than your studio stuff and it had me kind of scratching my head yeah i think that well i think from the beginning we were we were a better live band than we were in the studio but you know and so uh, I didn't know how it was going to do, but I thought it would do at least as good as Spectre's because, uh, you know, it was it was a good record. And and we knew when we knew when we were recording, it was like, you know, this is the best version of astronomy. And, you know, it was a lot of things that we thought were really good. The, the only thing that I was disappointed was 
you know, I thought that we said we got to do a cover because that'll be the single. And so we did, uh, we got to get out of this place, which, you know, Don and Eric and I, we'd all played it in college, you know, and Joe, we'd all, you know, with various bands. So, you know, oh yeah, you know, and I think we played it, you know, we played it live occasionally. So we decided to make a, a, a instead of doing it just like the record, we changed it around and put like some Almond Brothers kind of, <laughs> lead guitar in there and make it try a little bit more like them you know but uh and i was disappointed though uh, both how it came out and how it was received it didn't seem to uh, resonate you know like the original of course but uh but you know it was great stuff on that record too you know kick out the jams oh yeah yeah um now there's uh, there's quite a few more stops. Obviously, we can we could make before Imagine Us comes into the story once more. But but I'd be remiss if we glossed over Fire of Unknown Origin, which was pretty much I think your guys' highest charting album and arguably, mm -hmm. and frankly, probably my producer's favorite of yours. Um, <gasps> what what all do you think came together that made that album so great? I mean, arguably the most popular song off the album was Burning for You. Mm -hmm. And I kind of want to ask you about the origins of that song, too. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you think came together that made that album so great altogether, first off? Uh, well, you know, uh, that record probably would not exist without Mirrors, because uh, Mirrors, we, we got assigned... Uh, well, we were trying to find uh, a producer besides Sandy. We didn't want to use Sandy and Murray anymore. We wanted to to get somebody who was making hits. We, we tried to get Keith Olsen, who had just done the first uh, Stevie Nicks uh, Fleetwood Mac record, you know, and was also in the music machine. And so who, who you know, we, all of us had played uh, Talk Talk in our college bands, you know, it was like, it was just a, you had to play it. It was like a great ensemble piece. Dun, dun, you know, it's like, it had a, a great, great thing and a punky attitude and it was great so so we wanted to get Keith Olsen and he was interested but he came to see us uh, practice and he he decided he didn't want to do it uh, maybe he was too busy I don't know what exactly he didn't give us any reason but so eventually the uh, Columbia said suggested Tom Worman who had done uh, Ted Nugent I think at that point I think it was before he did the the cheap tricks but um, and he rejected a lot of the the songs, you know, that I that I thought were were good songs, you know, and I, you know, I tried to, you know, at that point I was getting into Steely Dan and much more jazzy kind of stuff, and so it didn't really quite fit with the uh, the Blue Oyster Cult thing, you know, but I, it was what I was into, and I felt like, well, I just we should follow, you know, our muse and see where it takes us, you know, why should we pigeonholed you know but anyway so so but we made that record with him and you know we were like okay well this is the most commercial stuff we've ever done and of course in the was the first single and it was a top 40 hit and the record the album tanked because basically people heard in the and they did not realize it was blue oyster cult they thought mm. it was some country group or something so you know so so anyway and the record company they really didn't like it it was it was huh. too much not like blue oyster cult you know who knows what they would have thought if it if i got 
the songs I wanted on it. But anyway, uh, so then the next record, we got Martin Birch to be the producer. We lucked out and got, and he agreed to produce us. And we decided we were going to go back and just go back to the, like, if it's commercial at all, it's not going on. You know, it's it's going to be like the weird kind of strange record. And so we did that record and it was great. And uh, it didn't really sell a ton of records, but the fans loved it. The, the record company loved it. They said, all we need, all we need is a is a hit single. So and so one of the songs that was rejected for that record because it was too commercial was Burning For You. So. Uh, after we put out that record, I felt like, okay, now it's time to put Burning For You on it. Tan came in with a little different arrangement, much more, you know, with that fanfare, that boom, you know, it was like, oh yeah, that's it, that's it, okay, we got another hit, you know, and we all felt like it was a hit. And, and the other thing that happened with that record was that I, I was a big comic collector. I, I, Every town I would go, I'd go find the comic store and I'd go and find the weirdest comics. You know, I had, I think I have every Zap comic. You know, I was really into Robert Crumb and and most of the Furry Freak Brothers and, you know, a, a lot of those comics. I just, I got, and so when I was in Paris, I went to a comic store and there was this comic called Metal Hurlant. And so I love that thing. I got every Metal Hurlant issue that I could find. I didn't get everyone because some of the earlier ones I couldn't find, but I got all of them. I still have them right, right below me, right here in my storage space, and uh, and so uh, I had a friend, a writer from Cincinnati, named Brad Balfour, and he was friendly with uh, uh, these uh, movie and and comic. Uh, publishers and they wanted to to make a movie using those artists from Metal Harland. So I'm like, whoa, okay, you know. And he told me about it. So uh, he said, uh, would you guys be interested? And I'm talking to them about Blue Oyster Cult making this soundtrack. I said, oh my god, that would be great. So he got me. I have it somewhere, probably down there with a with uh, the comic books, I have the entire script for the heavy metal movie. So we were told we were gonna, so when we made this record, we actually had the script, we had it like on on boards all around the practice space with, and so each song was gonna fit with one of the scenes from the comic book, like one of the little, you know how it's like little stories, the story Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's almost like a Metal Hurlant comic book where it had all the different stories. And, and there was this, you know, this uh, uniting theme of, uh, of a mysterious glowing object that, uh, you know, was almost like Imaginos that would affect people's behavior, you know. So, uh, so when it, when, you know, so we get the record done and they're like, oh, no, no, we're using a bunch of other people, you know, but, but we will use, we, there's two songs that we want to use. Uh, 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 what's the song? Um, uh, it's called, uh, 
Uh, now I'm having a brain fart here. Well, one was burning for you, and the other was... Uh, um, uh, the Michael Moorcock song, I can't remember. Yeah, you almost have to think of the number uh, of tracks uh, to go, was, okay, and then yeah, it jogs uh, your memory, right? Yeah, Victor... Uh, uh, you're gonna have to cut this out <laughs> yeah Kyle can, uh, Kyle can edit it well yeah. let, let me ask you this looking back at your time in the band and your discography with them what album has stood the test of time for you which one is there one that you're most proud of or is that like trying to pick which child which child of yours you like the most nah nah I'd say I'd say the first record the record that I like the best is the first one that sounded good to me which was On Your Feet or On Your Knees got it yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I eventually I had another band and we worked with Jack Douglas um, with the Blue Coop and made our second record. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've laid out a lot of different threads here leading up to your new project, Imaginos Volume 3, mm -hmm. whose tendrils I can see uh, kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the band with the influence of Sandy Perlman. Mm -hmm. um, this project's obviously part of a trilogy starting with the story of Imagine Us. Mm -hmm. um, please walk us through kind of the, the, the creation of that first volume. I mean, when did you first have the idea for an album based around this mythical story? We touched upon it earlier. Did you guys have to sell, I mean, anybody on it or was everybody on board from the beginning? How did all that work? Yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I mean, Sandy's idea, I'd say around, well, let's see, I was still living in the village, in the East Village, so I moved out of there at 70, 77, so, or 76, so yeah, it'd have to be like 1975, you know, when, you know, right before Reaper, when Sandy said, you know, it'd be great to put all these Imaginos songs together on one record. So Imaginos, I had the song Imaginos, I had written for Agents of Fortune. And Sandy said, hold it back. Don't put this on here. I thought, you know, I thought it was going to be the second single or something, you know, but uh, he's like, no, no, it's, uh, it, we got to, we got to put all these Imagino songs together. Now we'd already, uh, uh, we'd already recorded Astronomy, which was supposed to be an Imagino. So, so Astronomy has a character named Desdenova, and uh, Desdenova is still is basically the female version of Imaginos. So, and the song Blue Oyster Cult already has Imaginos in it, you know, as a character. So there was that, and then there was all these other songs that we had written uh, and the one you warned me of with Imaginos in it and, you know, um, and and songs like Girl That Love May Blind or, or Siege and Investiture, all of those were, were supposed to be part of this whole thing. So he said, let's save it and have them have the band do a whole uh, Imaginos record. So that was basically a pro by the time we did uh, um, um, Cultosaurus Erectus, uh, and Joe had written in the presence of another world. He said, "Well, that's another Imagino song, so we should make this 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 album that you're making with Martin Burt should should be an Imagino's record." And they're like, "No way," you know. And I'm like, "Well, it would work, you know. I mean, it's it's a little obscure, and and it would." definitely get our fans back and they're like no 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 we got to get our writing credit 
So, you know, and we don't want to have a song that Sandy writes everything, you know. So, um, so we didn't do it. And so when, uh, when I was asked to leave the group, I was like, I don't know, you know, and Sandy was not in favor of that. I mean, at, at that time, he was still thinking, we're going to get to a point where they're going to need material and they will we'll agree to this plan to record the whole Imaginos thing. I said, okay, you know, and of course I was still writing, I was writing with Patty Smith and Helen Wheels and David Roeder, and I was still doing, writing with a lot of other people. So I always had stuff, whether it was with Sandy or somebody else. So it didn't matter much to me. I just wanted to make the best record. But when I was asked to leave the group, uh, Sandy said, don't worry. I'm talking to Columbia about getting you a solo record deal where you're going to do the whole Imaginos thing. I said, if you're willing. And I said, I am willing. I'm ready and willing. We've been talking about this for years. Let's do it. You know, so uh, so he did, he did get the deal and they agreed to put it out as my solo record. And I assembled a, a group of musicians, basically everybody that I, I had always wanted to play with. Well, a lot of people I wanted to, I was, I loved Jack, uh, Helen Wheels guitar player, Jack Rigg. And we'd already written Joan Crawford, you know, Joan Crawford is written from the grave with Jack. And I loved Tommy Morangello because I met him when he was playing the Hunter Ronson band. And uh, Tommy Mandel, who was playing in the Hunter Ronson band. And Kenny Aronson, who I knew from Dust and, um, you know, he played with Leslie West and he was... He was in all, you know, he played with the, 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 the McCoys, I mean, with Rick Derringer. I mean, you know, so I knew Kenny for many, many years. He was my favorite bass player. And uh, so I wanted him. And then uh, through Tommy, but I was going to play the drums. That was my original idea. But uh, Tom Morangello said, well, you know, maybe you should get a drummer just for the practice session so as you can work if you're going to sing all the vocals you really need to work on your vocals so i said okay you know so we got uh tommy price to play the drums and of course by the time we had done the the demos you know that were presented to columbia tommy was playing on all the demos and i was like you know it sounds good just like this well i'll play guitar and tommy will play the drums so so that's how that came about, and we we recorded the record. It took a long time because Sandy was involved. He was he was gonna he was he had a place in New York, but he was had another place in San Francisco, and he was getting involved, you know, with the four one five records, and he he'd been uh, working with Romeo Void and all of these other groups that you know out there. So uh, so. Uh, uh, so anyway, so I was not always, he was always working without me, you know, in the beginning we did everything together. You know, I went out to LA and we recorded, and this is 1983, we recorded uh, Robbie, Rob, Robbie uh, Krieger playing on about six songs or so. And, uh, and then, you know, and so by 1985, the record was almost done. We'd really gotten everything all together and uh, we were working at uh, a record uh, a studio out on way out on Long Island, Port Jefferson, called Boogie Hotel, that was owned by Foghat. And so, uh, which is the, ironic because they recorded a lot of their stuff in Bearsville. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. 
It was weird. But anyway, so they, they all this, you know, by then, everybody, you know, when I got signed, Bruce Lundvall was the head of uh, Columbia. By 1985, Bruce was gone. Tony Matola was there, and he brought all his own people. And so he, Tony didn't come out there, but uh, all these other people from, from the record company who had been installed by Tony, all his buddies, came out. And, uh, you know, there was a lawyer, there was an accountant. There was nobody, not really a musician there. But they listened to it, and they're like, well, where's the single? I'm like, single? This is a whole piece. You can't, you know, I mean, it's, I, I just didn't, I was like, did you, did you guys not hear the, the demos? They're like, no, we never heard it. I'm like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And so then it was trying to make what I had more commercial, which, you know, was kind of hard. And I, I, I said to Sandy, well, maybe we need to hire a Desmond Child or somebody to take one of these songs and turn it into a you know, pop song or something. And Sandy's like, no, 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 that's, that's worse. You know, it would just destroy our reputation or something. I don't know. So he was, he was against that. So he, about a year later or two years later, 1987, because the thing had stalled, you yeah. know, and I had, I had, you know, I, first I was, uh, I was, uh, um, working with my, my brother-in-law and his refrigeration company, servicing commercial refrigerators and, and supermarkets and factories and stuff. And, and that was a rough, rough gig. I mean, I, I could do it. I was relatively young at that point, but, but it was not, you know, it was like, okay, I can do anything, I guess, but, you know, I really would rather be playing music, you know, so, and then from there, I went to driving a cab, driving a yellow cab, and I, I did that for about a year, uh, and, um, yeah, and then Sandy, while I was driving the cab, Sandy called me up one day and said, listen, I got a great idea. I know how we can get it out and how they're going to, how the co company is going to support it. I said, okay. Uh, he goes, oh, I got another call. I'll, I'll call you right back. Okay, I didn't hear from him for another 20 years. But uh, I did hear <laughs> from the management of the, you know, Steve Shank, you know, who was his assistant at the time, called me and said, yeah, so they're going to put it out as a Blue Oyster Cult record. I'm like, what? Uh, do I have any say in this? And he goes, yes, yes. You know, I, first of all, we need the tapes. You have the tapes. You know, can you bring them? I said, well, I'll bring them. But, you know, I mean, if they want to put it out, you know, I, I don't want them to put it out without me. I have to be in the band. I mean, sure, it was your, it was kind of your thing. Yeah, it's my thing. And if they want to put it out as, you know, if they finally want to do what Sandy wanted to do, then I'm, you know, that's fine as long as they, I, I'm not, you know, I was already getting pushed out, you know, because he was in San Francisco. So I was like, I want to have, you know, first of all, I want to make sure that I get the credits right because, you know, we had all these people playing on it and, you know, I promised them that they would get credit, you know, I mean, some of them were paid, some were not, but, you know, they all need to get credit. 
And so uh, they said, oh, yeah, yeah, don't worry. You're going to you'll have final approval of everything and you'll have approval of the sequencing and the mixing. And, you know, but I just need you to get to agree to this. I said, OK, I agree. You know, as long as I'm part of the band. Said, and did it ultimately work out that way? No, no. I, I you know, the, I agreed. I brought the tapes over and that was it. I didn't hear another thing until the record was out. What about the mythology and musicality of Imaginos do you think has kept the fire going in you and all these years to then work again on it in 2020 and now again in 2023? I mean, having, especially with what, ju what you just told me, what yeah. keeps bringing you back to it? Okay, so, well, one of the things is that when it did come out, I had heard that Sandy was disappointed. We didn't talk about it, but I was extremely disappointed. Number one, I didn't like how it sounded. I thought that it was, uh, it was all muffled, uh, you know, probably because the tapes were played a zillion times and, you know, the, the, before they realized they were erasing part of the information. And, and the other thing is that uh, they left off two songs that, I, that we recorded and were actually already mixed and everything it was ready to go. And I'm like, what? How could you do that? You know, the story isn't complete now. And uh, Sandy's like, they just decided that was the record company decision. I said, how come the credits are all wrong? You know, and, uh, you know, this is later when we talked about it. He said, well, I, you know, I just had to I had to come up with something fast. So he put it what he remembered, you know, but he he left people off and, you know, he misassigned some some people's roles. So. Anyway, cut to 2016. Uh, I worked for many years to try and uh, to uh, make amends for what I had done, you know, and uh, to try and um, patch it up with the guys in, in BOC. And uh, I'd say by by 2012, there was some sort of reunion. I think it was a 40, 45th or 40th anniversary of. Uh, well, no, it had to be 45th anniversary of, uh, of uh, Agents of Fortune. So I, I uh, participated in that, and we played at, uh, in Times Square, and uh, I played with them a few songs, like three or four songs, maybe five songs, I think. And it was all great, and it was really nice, and Alan was there, and Joe was there. We all played, the five of us. and It was the last time we ever played together, but it was great great night and of course then everything started cooling you know everything started you know thawing out you know um and uh you know and i started you know i started going to their shows and they would bring me up on stage to sing a couple songs and so it was all really cool you know and uh so uh in 2016 it was in some other kind of anniversary and so uh uh, I I went on tour with them. I I did like a half a dozen shows with them. I played in L.A. two shows, and I played in London. I played in Dublin. I played in New York a few times, and uh, and so it was all it was great fun. And uh, but uh, earlier that year, and actually in December of 2015, Sandy Perlman had had an accident and he fell. I think he might, he might have had a stroke or something, but he fell and hit his head on uh, a, a curb 
in her parking lot and uh, he was in a coma. And so uh, Robert Duncan, who is a writer uh, from, who lives in San Francisco, he was taking care of him. I said, Robert, if he comes out of this coma, let me know because I have things I have to say to him, you know, and I want him to hear it. Because by then, you know, the whole thing about him, I, I was sorry that I sued him. You know, I was sorry that the whole thing happened. I sorry that I, you know, was not more cooperative, you know. Um, and so, and, and I don't think I ever told him how much I appreciated everything that he'd done for me. So, so I wanted to go see him. So he did come out of the coma and I went to see him in February and I spent two days in the hospital with him and basically for eight hours a day and I just, you know, I held his hand, I sang all his favorite songs, you know, we, we talked about, I mean, I talked because he couldn't speak. So I talked, you know, but he could respond, he, he moved his left pinky and, and he, he could, he could move his eyes. So but, he could acknowledge what you were saying. Right. So and he, he could understand, and, but he just couldn't communicate Back. Yeah, so I, it was the most bizarre thing because usually when I was with him, I couldn't get a word word in edgewise, and here I am doing all the talking. So anyway, while while I was there, I said, you know, uh, Sandy, I promise you, I'm going to redo the the album the way it should be. I'm going to get a hold of those tapes. I'm going to remix them. I'm going to put the put the new songs on them, and I'll make sure that you know that's people get to hear it the way it's supposed to be and uh, and I said and I'm gonna do the other you know I'm gonna do the bombs over Germany and, and mutant reformation albums too because you know that's part of the story so you know we talked about it when we were making the first one you know about what was gonna happen after that you know I I, I mean both of us thought that this was going to be a huge record that, you know, was going to be our, our masterpiece, basically, you know, and then, you know, we'd have a follow up, you know, of, you know, the next chapter, you know, after the humanity has succeeded in destroying itself and, you know, and what happens after that, you know, so, uh, so I told him that I was going to do that. And then, of course, and I, but thinking that he might get better, you know, I mean, I didn't know that much about brain injury and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I'd heard that people could come out of, out of comas and, and come back to, you know, you know, uh, participating in life, you know, not being shut in, you know, that they could talk, learn to talk and walk and whatnot. So I was hoping that that was what was going to happen. But then... I was on tour with Blue Oyster Cult in England, and uh, I heard that he died. And so at that point, I was like, that's it. That's it. I can't, I can't do it now because he's gone, you know. And, uh, and then in 2019, I started getting a lot of fans. I, for some reason, they started writing saying, um, hey, are you ever going to release your, your version of Imaginos? And... So I had a little combo that I was playing with uh, a couple uh, for, former students, kids that had graduated, you know, and they were like in their 30s now, you know, from, from the school and one of the other school teachers, you know, David Hirschberg. So the four of us started working up these songs 
from Imaginos. And I was kind of liking how it was coming out. And I, I had started thinking about like, well, what were the arguments we had that were he lost? And what, what would happen if I did it his way? Because I was really interested just as an experiment to see what would happen. So, and then COVID came. Yeah. And so I was like, ah, well, I guess I just have to do it by myself. I'll take whatever they did and I'll incorporate it into what I'm doing. And I, I redid most everything, but I used a little bit of what my students did. And of course, uh, they both, you know, because they, because of COVID, they ended up being more, more, they were essential workers, basically. One guy was a programmer for the robots and stop and shop. And the other other person was a, was a conductor on a subway train. So, you know, they had real jobs. So they couldn't, they couldn't help me. But David Hirschberg uh, came and he played all the bass on the record. And, and I did just about everything else. I had uh, some of the people on Imaginos had given me guitar parts, you know, remotely. I would send them stuff over the internet, and then, yep. you know, which is kind of what we've been doing now, even now, you know, even with people that, well, this is a whole uh, digression. I'll, I'll stick to Imaginos for now. So we put that out and, and when it was, you know, I, I'd, I'd gotten a new manager, this guy, Jeff Keller, and who I've known for years, but, you know, he decided that he wanted to manage me. He, I was feeling like, you know, I want to, I'm planning on retiring from this, this school job and I, I wanted to have a manager, you know, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't uh, Blue Oyster Cult's manager because, well, that guy, the guy who was managing him had no interest in, in working with me at that point. So, uh, so anyway, so the, the first thing the manager did was he got me uh, a movie role. Uh, which uh, fell through because of COVID, you know, because then the next thing was COVID. And then, but right after that, he got me a record deal to put out a record. And so I said, well, I have this Imaginos thing. And, uh, and so I told it to the, the record company, Deco Entertainment. And they said, oh, that sounds great. You know, that's right up our alley. So I put it out. I made an announcement. I, I uh, got a, you know, publicist to get me uh, interviews like such as what we're doing right now. And the fans started writing me, are you going to do the other two versions? Because uh, other two uh, uh, volumes. And I s said, it depends. If this thing comes out and it does what almost all of the other records that I've put out, you know, you know, because I've I put out about 10, 10, 11, 12 records since uh, Blue Oyster Cult under my own name. You know, and first I had a little record company, which, you know, when we put out other people's records, nothing ever sold. It was basically a break, in e break even after two or three years proposition. You know, I'd never sold any kind of volume. So I said, if this, if this record sells, I will do the other two. And of course, you know, I made the charts, I sold thousands of records, I got a lot of money, you know, more, much more than, you know, uh, uh, multiple times what I ever, I ever made. And this was, you know, right, right off the, as soon as it came out, 
there was the money was there. I was like, okay, I guess I have to do this. So then I was like, okay, this is going to be the next three or four years of my life. And so, that, and that, that brings us to, to now where you're yeah. currently promoting the final volume of the trilogy yeah. mutant reformation. Uh, walk us through the story and creation of this final chapter. Um, I mean, did you guys, did you always know that there was going to be a third? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, well, not, not, back in the beginning, not in 1967, when he was telling me the story, because he only got up to the part where humanity destroys itself, which is at the end of Bombs Over Germany. Mm -hmm. Oh, and so, uh, you know, at the end of World War Three. So I'm like, well, what would happen after that? You know, this is why we're making the, the original Maginos back in the 80s. And he said, Oh, the mutant reformation. It's obvious. You know that that life life you know if you think about it the universe is teeming with life you know it's everywhere you know it, it, the idea that we're the alone in the universe is preposterous really well so, and somebody else had already written temples of syrinx yeah yeah i mean there's lots of, <laughs> there's lots of things i was just watching a, some ufo hearings this morning the yeah. latest ones and it's Pretty, pretty mind-boggling. I mean, but the the people, very knowledgeable people, very, uh, you know, they're not crackpots at all. You know, they're nuts and bolts kind of scientists or, you know, um, people in the military or whatever. Mm -hmm. So. Oh, and they're talking you know, about it right now. It's all yeah, coming yeah. out right now. Yeah, so, yeah, it's pretty wild, you know. And and why not? I mean, it's it just seems that that's the way it is. So he was like, that's what happens. Is that life life comes back. You know, it's maybe different from what we expected, but, um, you know, so so the story and from from my perspective is that two things happen in, in the mutant reformation. Number one is Imaginos uh, has a change of heart and he decides that he needs to make amends and he needs to, you know, uh, and, and he, he basically has to get rid of the mirror. He has to, so he, they, he tries to destroy it, but it will not be destroyed. So the only thing he can do is try and put it in a place where nobody else can, can find it, you know, or, or can get to it. So, uh, and so that's a song that I wrote with Richie Castellano called Mountain of Madness, where he, uh, where he uh, finds a place to put the, the mirror that uh, is safe, you know, for the rest of the, for whatever is left. You know, and then then after that, it's when the aliens come back to Earth and kind of um, repopulate. And of course, there was the girl that loved me blind, who was in the very first. You know, the whole thing with the girl that loved my blind was she, she takes this drug that makes her live forever, and then they send her into space. So she's out there. So it seemed uh, obvious that she has to come back. So that's basically the, the whole entire story. You know, the, the, the mutants come up and they, they, they kind of, uh, you know, uh, and oh, and there's also robots. There's robots that still kind of work, you know. So there's the robots, the mutants, and the aliens. And that's how, where it ends, you know. And then I, I tacked on uh, Buddha's knee at the end because that is the first song I wrote with Sandy and and so it's the last one in the trilogy. And who knows, you know, it could be that, uh, you know, it all ends at a, at a Buddhist shrine in Japan, you know, you with Godzilla in, chanting. <laughs> you brought in so many fantastic players for the record from oh, yeah. uh, RJ Ronquillo, yeah. uh, Ross the Boss Friedman, yeah. uh, 
Dr. Jack Rigg, Vaughn Burton, plus uh, Greg on violin, Mookie Thomas on keyboards, yeah. Prince Omega on drums. How did all those pieces come together? Uh, you know, it's just, uh, before I'd start each record, I'd say, this is what I want, except for the first one. The first one, I just wanted to do it and see what happened. And, and then as I was doing it, I was like, I was playing the leads and I'm like, okay, well, I'm an okay player, but I want somebody, you know, so, and I'd, I'd gotten to know RJ over the years, you know, when he was doing a gear demos and I'm like, hey, I'm Albert from Blue She called and he's like, oh my God, you know? So he knew me and I said, uh, hey, would you play on my record, you know? And he said, sure, you know? And so, uh, so I got him, you know, the first record he's playing on like six or seven songs, I can't remember exactly, but most of the record. And then the, the second record he was getting very busy so he could only do two and this one he did three so but uh yeah and each time every every time i get a lead i'd be like oh my god this is so good so good you know i, I keep saying to myself now i've got to learn these leads you know and i'll be great you know but uh you know i've learned a lot just from from listening to him and watching him but uh and then Ross, of course, is amazing, and uh, and he was amazing on this, you know, that the Transmaniacon track that I did with the Dictators. That was basic. It was so quick, it was so quick. I just did a drum track, one take, and then, uh, uh, well, then I had Keith Roth come over, you know, who was who had just joined the Dictators, and he he played a rhythm guitar, and he's not, you know, he's not. Uh, He's no Ross the boss, you know, but he's a decent player. But it took me a couple hours to get him to play the right part, you know, because he he wanted to play all big, you know, cowboy chords. I'm like, no, 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 no. You got to play it like metal, you know, with the palm muting and, and don't play the whole chord. Just play like three notes, you know, no more than three. So uh, I taught him something and uh, and he came up with this really nice rhythm guitar part Then I brought I brought the uh, track to Ross and he did one take, knocked out, you know, he said, let me do another, let me double it. So I, he doubled it and that was it. He, he did his thing like that. And then, then uh, I was Keith Roth, you know, we were practicing with the dictators and after one of the practices, I said, hey, you know, come on over to my house, let's do this vocal. And he knocked out the vocal. We did two takes, it was the same thing. He did one, I said, good, we're done. He's like, no, 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 let me have another shot. So I said, okay, but we're not doubling it, you know. So, uh, so he did another take, and actually, I, I did use the little talking part at the end from that take, but uh, it was basically the first take. And then Andy Chernoff, he took it to his house and he did bass part and, you know, a couple hours. So it's having, really good. having completed the trilogy. Looking back, uh, yeah. what do these albums mean to you? personally, since I, they've been wound up in your story for, for so gosh darn long. Yeah, it feels great. It feels great. You know, I mean, uh, sometimes interviewers will say, well, what's next? You know, and there's plenty next. I mean, I, I have, you know, I'm, I'm doing a new record with the dictators, but also for the Imaginos, for this Imaginos saga. Uh, well, I'm not going to show you because I don't know that I'm allowed to, but it's the next thing is this is the comic book, the graphic novel. So the, I think they're going, the idea is they're gonna do 
they're going to release them just like they did uh, the records one at a time. So the first one is done. It's being printed as we speak. So we're not sure exactly how we're going to release it, if, we're, if it's going to be its own entity or if it's going to be part of a package or uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I'd, I'd like to sell it at my gigs because uh, got a bunch of gigs coming up. So, but we'll see. You know, uh, supposedly next next week uh, we're going to have a Zoom meeting to discuss how we're going to promote this. But yeah, it, I think it's something that's every fan of BOC is going to want to have it. You know, it's just it's it's a fantastic thing. It's really cool, and and we've already started working on the next two two chapters so uh, the next two acts I suppose because it's you know each song is like a, a different chapter you know so yeah what do you think Sandy's favorite song would be off the new record what, what do I think I'm sorry what do you what think you? Sandy's favorite song would be off the new record off the new one uh, I think I think he would like the new version of heavy metal. That sounds a lot, you know, the first one sounds so goofy, you know, and this one sounds like really like something, you know, and he's got a lot of his, his, uh, his metaphysical uh, concepts are in there, the magnetic mirrors and all of these things that, you know, that they're talking about in this hearing today, you know, about how these alien ships are powered, you know, because they don't make any noise, or they make a little little tiny noise. It's probably the the fan to keep them cool, you know. And it's and 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 magnetism and electro, you know, and electricity. Is a is a, probably the way to go for all kinds of transportation. I got an electric truck out here. So, like I said, I've I've you know I've I've got some gas powered cars but i you know i picked up a tesla a few years ago and tell you what it was it was it's it was good during yeah. the pandemic i'll tell you that much so yeah. um where can our audience go these days to keep up with you and and your tour you know on uh, social media or elsewhere well i do have a i have a uh, albert bouchard uh fan page on facebook i'm not exactly sure what the uh what the what the url is but um and I do have a website, which I have all my gigs on there. So uh, not just uh, my, my solo gigs. I have four solo gigs coming up, but I put everything on there. I put my, I sing with a glee club. So actually my very next gig is next week singing for the Brooklyn Cyclones. It's a farm team for the Mets. And in Coney Island, which is a great, you know, so, you know, we're going to sing a couple songs, you know, out of, on the field, you know, I, I love, you know, it's something that I did after I retired from, from teaching because I, now I have time, you know, so I, I, I don't know, we, they do, I, I, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make the next concert, which is in December, because I'm going on tour with the Dictators uh, for, um for about a week or so, actually almost two weeks, just about two weeks and Spain and then they come back and we do another gig in New York. And then I'm going back to France to do um, a, uh, uh, um, an acoustic record with a heavy metal group called Knucklehead. So yeah, 
That's and, actually uh, interesting and kind of fun. Al, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, Albert Bouchard. Thank you, David. My pleasure.